Good morning. I will be reading from Romans 4, verse 13 to 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is, a, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, <clears throat> in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Lord, add understanding to your word this morning. We are picking up where we left off last week, mid-verse and mid-sentence, Romans 4, 17b, which comes after the dash in the sentence beginning in verse 16. We'll read that to start. This is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Last week, we continued to learn that all people, regardless of their ethnicity or culture, background, can be regarded as descendants of Abraham, heirs to his promise and inheritance, if they follow in the faith of Abraham. In fact, there are no other distinguishing markers between types of people when it comes to salvation. When it comes to membership in the people of God, there are no other distinguishing markers than faith. Chapter 4 began by excluding good works as a prerequisite for right standing before God. That is, being declared righteous and justified. And then it moves to ethnicity, Jewish ethnicity, and the covenant sign of circumcision. These two are rejected as distinctions for what makes somebody right in the sight of God. Even law adherence, that is, keeping the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, will not produce righteousness or cause one to be considered a true member of the people of God. It depends only on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, both Jew and Gentile alike. 
all who share the faith of Abraham will be considered both his descendants and children of God. This is what we've learned so far. Faith is the deciding factor. No background, no righteous works of our own, not how long we've been attending church, not whether we messed up really bad in the past or didn't, not whether we put on a persona of Christianity, not whether we have some sort of religious uh, ancestry, but faith alone. This is the only marker. It depends only on faith. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. All who share in the faith of Abraham will be considered his descendants. All who share the faith of Abraham are children of God. So, what is this faith which apprehends so great a reward? If Abraham, by his faith, functions as the father of all peoples, and if his faith was counted to him as righteousness, then it is imperative to define the nature of his faith. This is why I have chosen to divide the passage mid-sentence here. The main point shifts here in the middle of verse 17 as Paul begins to describe the sort of faith by which both Jewish and Gentile believers are justified, made heirs of Abraham's promise, and are ultimately transformed by the mighty Word of God, which declares them righteous. So, when we remove the parentheses marked by the dashes, the sentence reads, Romans 4, 16, this is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all His offspring, in the presence of God in whom He believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So, if Abraham's faith is the saving faith, If this is all that matters, if all the other distinctions are thrown out, only faith matters, it's so important that we understand what is this faith? What did this faith look like? If we have to follow in a faith like Abraham's, then it is so important that we understand Abraham's faith. And so the first thing we learn to begin with is, number one, authentic faith trusts in God's righteousness. The first quality of Abraham's saving faith, which we see here, is that he trusted in the presence of God in whom he believed. That is that at the outset, Abraham's faith was in God. Now, we think about this, well, yeah, we believe in God. We know, we know God exists. We believe God created the earth. We believe God saved us. Abraham's faith was in God in that he learned to trust the character and nature of God. This is an essential characteristic to authentic faith, church, that one believes in God, not merely that God exists, but in whom God reveals Himself to be, and that He is immutable, that is, that God does not change in His nature, character, or being. In Him, James 1.17, there is no variation or shadow due to change. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, they had ticked him off royally. And he says, You're lucky that I am a God who does not change. I do not lie. I do not change my mind. I have decided to save you. If I hadn't decided to save you, you'd all be dead. But because I do not change, you are not consumed. 
Scripture is full of descriptions of God's character, but it is also filled with narratives describing His activity, which is always consistent with His nature and character as holy. Authentic faith trusts in the character of God, who He is. He cannot change who He is. He cannot do other than what His character dictates. We have a God who is totally reliable. Adam and Eve failed to trust that God was good. They believed that He was withholding something good from them. They failed to trust that He was good, and then they failed to trust that He was holy and that He would not let the rebellion slide without capital punishment. You know, they, they failed to understand these two things about God. He loves us. He's not withholding good things from us. He's not saying, well, there's all these good things, but I'm going to reserve these other good things for me and not give them to you. He gives them everything good, and also they failed to trust that He is holy. That is, that He is righteous in judgment and that it would cost them everything. Your faith is incomplete when you do not trust that God is working all things for your good. And your faith is incomplete if you do not fear God enough to obey Him. Throughout his life, Abraham learned that he could trust the unchanging character of his God. He believed in God. Secondly, number two we see, authentic faith trusts in God's sovereign and creative power. Our God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Uh, the pinnacle of this will be referenced in verse 24 when God raised Jesus from the dead. But for Abraham, it was that God called his son Isaac into existence long before he was born. And that when God tested Abraham, demanding the life of this son, Abraham was able to obey God because, Hebrews eleven nineteen, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So the focus is on God's sovereign ability to accomplish His purposes, making statements about what will be when those things are not yet true. In other words, God makes promises to His people about their future that we can absolutely count on. Because of this, we know that when God declares someone righteous, as He counts the righteousness of Jesus Christ to their account, they will be righteous. What God declares always comes to pass. Because of His revelation of God's sovereign and creative power, Abraham was able to trust that God could effectively call His future descendants into existence, even though they did not yet exist. To have the faith of Abraham means that we too believe because God says something is true even without seeing it. Saving faith, church, that authentic faith uh, is a faith which believes God is who He says He is, the truth, and that He will do what He says He will do regardless of how things appear. Romans 4, 18 and 19 says, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. 
Now, the quotation here, so shall your offspring be, is taken verbatim from Genesis 15, 5, which, when read in its context, reflects the magnitude of the promise and how utterly impossible Abraham would have considered its fulfillment to be in any natural circumstance. He who is uh, 100 years old and who has a barren wife who is 90 years old is going to uh, be father, uh, a multitude, uh, as many as the, the sands of the seashore, uh, Genesis 15, 5 to 6, and he brought him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So we have a God who is good a God who is holy and just, and we have a God who can do whatever He wants to. The third mark of authentic faith we want to look at is that authentic faith focuses on God rather than on the situation. So regardless of how far-fetched this seemed for an elderly man and his barren wife, in hope he believed against hope, which is to say that Abraham maintained hope despite the hopelessness of the situation. But what sustained Abraham in his faith was a vision of the God who could do the impossible. Not a confidence that Abraham himself could faithfully bring the promise to pass. He didn't think that he was able to somehow accomplish the prophecy that God had given him. He was, verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And so a focus on God is necessary rather than on the situation. But number four, it may surprise you, authentic faith is realistic and doesn't overlook the situation. Now, this, this flies in the face of what I was taught growing up in the Word of Faith prosperity heresy. But Abraham did not look at the situation. He looked at God. He had no human reason to hope, but he took God at His Word he does not believe in spite of his inability, though, but he believes because of it. It is because of his inability. For this reason, he relies entirely upon God alone with determined volition. Authentic faith, church, involves no denial of the reality of our situation. Abraham didn't refuse to contemplate the real circumstances and obstacles to the promise. Right? It says here, he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He and his wife were as good as dead. They were incapable of having children, verse 19. Sarah had been barren for her entire life and was now about 90 years old. The Bible tells us that Abraham considered all these things, and yet it did not weaken his faith. As I said, this example in Abraham is the exact opposite of what I was taught growing up in the Word of Faith cult. There we learn to deny reality in a sort of mind-over-matter exercise. For example, you would not say that you were sick because that is a negative confession. Instead, you would say that you were well and then repeat that over and over to yourself, hoping that it would become true. This is not what we see Abraham do, though. Our father of faith... He considered the reality that really exists and then considers the power of God over that and over every other situation. A particularly sad story I can tell is I was visiting a, a church in this word of faith heresy and a man came up 
And there was a number of people that came up and, and told the story, the testimony of their miraculous healing. And a man came up who had brain cancer, and he came up to the, in front of the church, and he told everybody that he had been cured of his brain cancer, that the doctors were mystified. He was uh, given only weeks to live because of this tumor, and now God had done a mighty miracle, and he was completely free of cancer. And I visited this church only three weeks later, and I said, where's the man who was healed so miraculously from brain cancer? And I was told, well, he died from brain cancer. Just the ridiculousness of, of saying that something is true that is not. We, we, your God is too small if you need to downplay the difficulty or the impossibility of your situation in order to have faith. Abraham did not downplay the situation. He did not pretend the situation didn't exist. He fully looked at it. He, the Bible says twice, he considered it. He considered the impossibility of what God had promised. But his God was bigger. Number five, authentic faith trusts in God's promises. That is that the biblical faith is always dependent on a word from God. Faith is not in faith. Faith is, is nothing of itself, but fully reliant on the object of faith. And so in his second letter, Peter wrote, 2 Peter 1.1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Believers, all believers, have received a faith equal to the apostles, no more and no less, because the object of our faith is one and the same and is received in exactly the same way by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that is to say there are not some with large faith and some with small faith, but if your faith in Jesus is in Jesus Christ, you have an, a faith with, on equal standing with the apostle Peter who walked with him, talked with him, and saw him transfigured on the mount saw Him resurrected from the dead. There are not tears of faith in the Christian walk. We have one object of faith. Our faith is one and the same. But faith is in the object of Jesus Christ, and authentic faith trusts in His promises. Abraham's faith clung to the promises of God to save, not to his own subjective faith, he believed only in the spoken Word of God, just as our faith must be solely in the promises of the written Word of God. So, let me even take this a little bit more direct. It means that we don't get what we want when we decide what we want based on the size of our faith. We don't decide, hey, I want to have this. I'm going to faith that into existence. I don't decide that this, is, this healing is something we really need. Oh, man, I just don't have enough faith. I don't decide what the trajectory of my life is by my faith. I don't have a faith that matters except for that my faith is in the Word of God. Authentic faith trusts in God's promises. Faith is not about trying to get God to do what you want. Faith is trusting that God will accomplish all His Word. Verse 20, no unbelief made Him waver concerning the promise of God. 
But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Number six, authentic faith does not doubt God's reliability and promise. Now, if we look back at the Genesis narrative, we find that Abraham and Sarah did not always show faith in God. But Paul is not here trying to chronicle in detail all the ups and downs in the faith life of Abraham, but the basic pattern and direction of Abraham's life was that he didn't waver concerning the promise of God, in the sense that he ultimately persevered and persisted in faith. And so when he says here that his, his faith did not waver, it doesn't mean that there weren't ups and downs. It doesn't mean there weren't times when he questioned. You don't have to say, well, because sometimes I question, because sometimes I need to come to God with, with my problems and, I, and I'm not quite sure how he's going to deal with this, that doesn't mean that you don't have authentic faith. We look at the actual life of Abraham and see that Abraham had some serious ups and downs in whether he trusted God's Word. But God's faithfulness to Abraham was not nullified by Abraham's temporary faithlessness. Yeah, Abraham had some serious occasions of faithlessness to God, but it is not reliant on Abraham's faith, but rather God's unremitting faithfulness was sufficient to shepherd Abraham's faith so that he did not waver concerning the promises of God. So, the faithfulness of God is not reliant on our faithfulness. The exact opposite is true. Our faithfulness is fully reliant on the steadfast covenant love and faithfulness of our God. So, when I say that authentic faith does not doubt God's reliability and promise, it is because God continues to steward our faith, continues to show us faithfulness, Though we are a million times unfaithful, God continues to walk faithful towards us. And so, in the end, our faith will not waver. I've told this story maybe too many times, but it, it, it's a story that impacts me, so I'll tell you again. I went to an old neighbor who was an old Christian. I think he was about 96 and when I was in, an unbeliever in college, he would invite me up to him and his wife's apartment, and they would give me money. They promised to give me money for school. And every time I would go up, he would give me $50, which back then was a lot of money. And he would say to me, I have been unfaithful to God over and over again, but he has always been faithful to me. And despite his track record of, of wavering in faith. At the end, this man, 96, had an unwavering faith in the God who had never failed to keep his promises. Number seven, authentic faith gives glory to God. This is our final one. This is so important. True faith, authentic Christian faith, always gives glory to God. Do you see how in some of these other areas where we've countered uh, heresies and false teaching, that those are types of faith that give glory to us? You know, I've got a big faith. I pray for people. 
I get what I want because my faith is big. I've, I've built up my faith muscles. I've got this awesome faith going on. You know, there's all sorts of ways to give glory to ourselves when we do not understand what faith really is. In contrast to those in Romans 1.21 who refuse to glorify God and give Him thanks even after seeing His works, Abraham glorified Him before the fulfillment of His promise, counting His word as good as done, steadfastly acknowledging the trustworthiness of His promise. Authentic faith glorifies God by acknowledging that life must be lived in complete dependence upon Him. The way to glorify God, the supreme act of worship, is not to work for Him, but to trust that He will fulfill His promises. I want to say that again. The the way to glorify God, it's not that we shouldn't obey, but the supreme act of worship is not to work for Him. Remember, works don't save. What is saving? What will justify us? Faith. This faith that glorifies God, this ultimate act of worship is not just to work for God, but to trust that God is fully capable to keep His promises to us. To work for God's will to take place, even if we're zealous, even if we're fervent in working for God's will to take place, if we do that without recognizing the sovereignty of God to accomplish it without us at all, or even despite us, this is to fail to glorify God and worship Him rightly. Again, there are are many who believe the subtle lie that God helps those who help themselves, that God in some way relies on our work to accomplish His will. People unthinkingly say foolish things like, God wants this or that to happen, but it will only happen if we get to work or we get to prayer or we do the evangelism, not realizing that this kind of belief puts God in the passenger seat, hoping that His human agents will accomplish what He Himself is unable to do. Some even assert that God has somehow tied His own hands and kept Himself from powerfully accomplishing His will. What, what nonsense, what an unbiblical thought. It's not that we shouldn't work for God, but remember, before work takes place, salvation takes place through faith by the grace of God. The gospel message invites sinners who are under God's wrath to trust that God is fully able to save, to forgive their sins, to make them a new creation, and give them eternal life without any work of their own and without possession of any virtue that would qualify them. Such is the faith that glorifies God, church, one that recognizes, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 31 reads, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
It is because of Him you are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us boast in the Lord. Authentic faith always gives all glory to God. The chapter then concludes by applying the example of Abraham to all believers, all the spiritual descendants of Abraham, by showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made to him. We'll read verses 23 to 25. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul regularly expressed his understanding that all of the Old Testament scriptures were written for the sake of New Testament believers. This is a common thing that Paul says. Here's a popular TV preacher today who has said that we need to unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament. It's ridiculous because Jesus and his apostles continually strengthened that tie over and over again in everything that they said. He writes it again, Paul writes again in, in Romans 15:4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, what Scriptures is Paul talking about? Scriptures that Paul had in his day. What God did in and for Abraham is not only relevant for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but is also relevant for all believers. For what God did for Abraham, He is eager to do for all those who have the faith of Abraham. But it is not just any kind of faith which qualifies one to be called a believer and to be known as a child of Abraham, a Christian, a child of God. Abraham's faith had a specific profile that is reproduced in the life of his children. Abraham's faith and what God did for him in response to that faith is a picture of both the type of faith God requires us to have and of what God will do for us in response to that faith. Although all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and fall short of the glory of God, those who believe the gospel are credited with righteousness. Now, typically in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the object of believers' faith. Almost always, when it talks about the faith of believers, it's faith in Jesus Christ. But here, the object of faith is in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. So, the apostle chooses to speak of God as the object of believers' faith here, God the Father, to show how this corresponds to Abraham's faith that was also faith in God. Abraham didn't know of the resurrection of Jesus. It took place thousands of years later. But what binds the faith of believers today with Abraham's is that both believed in the God who resurrects the dead and in a God who fulfills His promises. The resurrection of Jesus in history signals the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham's people. Jesus, our Lord, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Although in the end all things are for the glory of God, Paul's emphasis here is that Christ's handing over was for us. And that His resurrection was also for us. 
what was promised to Abraham, salvation through his descendant. This is for us. You know, from, from an external, historical perspective, it was Pilate who handed Jesus over to death. But at, a, at another, far more important level, it was God who handed him over. Later in Romans 8, when Paul reflects on this costly action of God and its implications, he says, uh, Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Our Heavenly Father, church, did not withhold what was most dear, and most costly to him. And if he did not withhold Jesus, the death of his son, then we should not doubt him that he will graciously give us every good thing. He did not just save his own through the costly sacrifice of Christ, but grants us everything promised to Abraham and more. Christ died for us, in our place, taking upon Himself the wrath of God for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53.4-6, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. But the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The resurrection constitutes evidence that Jesus Himself has been vindicated. You know, if, if he came and he declared himself to be the Son of God, and then he was put to death for blasphemy, if he stayed dead, that would be a pretty significant uh, damper on our faith, right? That would be a pretty good indicator that Jesus didn't know what he was talking about, probably a, a crazy and blasphemous person, right? But by the resurrection, Jesus himself has been vindicated in that God declared Jesus was right when he raised him from the dead which then serves to prove that His promised work on our behalf was completed. If Jesus was right about who He was, that He would be resurrected, then He was also right about what He would accomplish. And so to say that Jesus was raised for our justification is to say that His resurrection authenticates and confirms that our justification has been secured, that His work on our behalf has been completed, that our faith is not misplaced, that we can trust Him who keeps His promise. Since believers are united to Jesus Christ in baptism, His death is our death and His resurrection is our vindication. Therefore, the resurrection of Jesus constitutes our justification. The death and resurrection of Christ fulfill the promise of universal blessing made to Abraham since they are the means by which all people enter in to the new people of God. This 
is authentic faith. Faith that knows the goodness of God. Faith that knows the justice of God. Faith that knows that God is capable to keep His promise. So, so if we know that He is true, and we know that He is just, and we know He doesn't change, and we know that He will keep His promises, and that He's capable of keeping His promises, this casts out fear, casts out doubt. Our worries are nonsense. Our anxieties misplaced. We should fear only our God. And this kind of faith, church, is not only what will justify us, but it is the faith that transforms, a faith that brings about obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your mighty Word, which is accomplishing everything that You have set it forth to do that you have not failed in any of your purposes because you are God. Forgive us, O God, for where we've had a a small view of you, where we've considered you weak and insufficient and unable to achieve your purposes. God, give us faith like Abraham. And like Abraham, with this faith, cause us to walk in obedience, radical obedience giving up even the things that are the most important to us for your sake and for your gospel. Lord, your word calls us to an obedience that is far beyond our own ability, a faithfulness that is far beyond our own ability, and yet it relies not on us but on your faithfulness to us. And so we give you praise and glory, and we recognize your work in this so that we can only boast in You. Forgive us of our pride, we pray. We come in repentance this morning and in celebration for the goodness You have shown us. In Jesus' name, for His sake we pray. Amen.
the Savior's day. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. In my need, His power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. In the deepest valley, Oh, thy night has been won, and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my part. And he was raised to overthrow. complete still my 